mature audience history podcast, Dark Histories, True Crime, Salacious Stories by historians for your R-rated educational intellect. This is Grim. I put the rope around his neck, twisted it, and threw him over my shoulder and held him there. It was more personal. I actually felt him die. I beat a guy to death one time. I had blood in my shoes. His blood in my shoes. It just goes on that way. I throw all my clothes up. I was driving a big Lincoln Town car, butt naked. Had a sheet wrapped around me. Free of any conscience, friends, and people who could bring you down, you were able to have a very long run as a successful contract killer. Did you ever use a chainsaw? To cut someone up? To dismember them, yes. Messy. Yes, it was. I've had requests where the guy wanted the guy's tongue cut out, and he also wanted his tongue put in his uh, rear end. I believe there was a definite point he wanted to get across. I was no longer taking the beating. I was giving it. And that's when I learned that it was better to give than to receive. I got myself a bottle, some gasoline, and I threw it in the car with him. And he was screaming and yelling and burning. And the car burned. And I could smell him walk down the block and I could hear him as I turned the corner. He was still yelling. Richard Kuklinski is one of the most dangerous criminals we have ever come across. It's our feeling that he is of such a diabolical, methodical type of killer that it's very possible that when all is said and done, we still may never know how many people he has actually killed. Hitman. Richard Kuklinski, better known as the Iceman. Freelance contract killed internationally, cut rapist dicks off, fed them to the sharks, if we're to believe him. Killed his childhood bullies, saved an African orphanage, and lit Jimmy Hoffa on fire and shipped him in a metal compactor to Japan. The character, Tony Soprano, took inspiration from the dichotomy of business and home life that contract killer Kuklinski separated so perfectly. Murdering and putting together Christmas toys with his wife for the kids. This is the rags to middle class Jekyll and Hyde murder for money family man contract killer story of the Iceman. You're listening to grim, explicit histories, grim topics, extreme, dark histories, folklore, and the paranormal for mature audiences. We keep it real. We keep it educational, thought-provoking, like a motherfucker. I'm Joe Woji, and this is grim. Educational entertainment from around the globe. We are American and world history professors Joe Woji and Brittany Smith, joined today by historian Ted Sisko, ethics professor Tim Collins, and psychologist and horror writer Frank Juknowitz. And this, my motherfuckers, is grim. Kuklinski, this motherfucker is probably if we are to take a lot of the media sources at face value the most prolific assassin hitman contract killer that's ever lived really he's killed according to a lot of the media sources at least 200 people in every fucking way possible he's a terrifying motherfucker at least prosecutors in the state of new jersey have said and all embellishment aside too that he is definitely for that state he's died in trenton state prison the most prolific murderer to come out of the state of new jersey for sure like all bullshit aside this is a guy they've taken inspiration from for a lot of the hollywood stuff that's been done like the sopranos 
for example, when you watch Tony Soprano, the way he acts, where he's got a family that's separate from his criminal activities, this is exactly what they take from Richard Kuklinski in Jersey City. The crazy part is that like fucking Tony Soprano is a little bit more of a polished Iceman than Kuklinski. He separates business and family, but he's still a motherfucker to his family and his kids. He loves them, but he's still Richard Kuklinski. This motherfucker, did you guys read? Stalked his daughter on her date. She's like 14, 15 years old. Imagine just like being a 14, 15 year old kid and you meet this pretty girl in homeroom and you want to hold her hand and go out to a movie. And the fucking actual Iceman is stalking you on your date, hiding in the shadows. It's the creepiest thing that I can imagine. Like, this kid could write a horror story about this, you know? Like, I dated the Iceman's daughter. And have you guys seen pictures of his daughter? He's got the whole family, right? Dwayne's his son. He was a little cold to him. But he's got Kristen and Merrick. Merrick was his favorite. And he told her, I got to kill your mother. Sorry, I got to kill all you guys, too. <laughs> I mean, this is something Tony Soprano would not have said to his kids. <laughs> I can just imagine that. Listen, honey, I might have to kill your mother. But if I do, I'm going to kill you, too. It'll hurt me, but... Yeah, it's going to hurt me a lot more than it hurts you. Exactly. Very comforting. <laughs> and Merrick, it'll be hardest to kill you. You're my favorite. That was his little girl. Was that the one he stalked? I, I think so, yeah. Was it? Was the oldest. Did they, did they know? Did they see? <laughs> he said it later. He did it, right? And I mean, he, he fucking said killed it, her dog when she came home late from a date. I did read that. <laughs> I don't think he was dog. like, right there, he's off my list. I'm right just going to kill your dog because you were late. I, you know, the dog was like barking at him. I'm guessing, I'm speculating. You know, the dog was probably barking at him for yelling yeah. at his daughter and he kicked the dog and the dog died. Probably. He probably wasn't like, let me murder the dog and it slit his throat. But dude, is what, what do we read? 380, I read two different things. Six five and between three and like yeah. three eighty, I think on the, on the high end was like three eighty, low end was a, in the low three hundreds. He didn't work out, but he would he's kill a motherfucker. Big, he's not and somebody I'd like to meet in a dark alley. But he was skinny when he was little, and that was part of yeah. why he got yeah. picked on. Yeah, and his dad was huge like him mm-hmm. when he, he was young, him. and I mean that had to drive the fear factor up through his childhood. And his dad killed his older brother. Yeah, he made the whole family. <laughs> yeah. Tell the yeah. cops that he fell down the steps. Yeah, right. That had to be something too. You watch your dad beat your mom, beat you, kill your brother. This is the family he's raised in. This is Stanley, his dad, who raises him. I mean, he's got his genetics, first of all. And then secondly, right. he's raised by him. So is, he's got nature and nurture both again. But his him. mother was violent, too. I was saying, yes. I read the mother. Yeah, the mother. Not maybe not nice. as bad as the <laughs> right. father, but surely not a nice mother. Extremely yeah. Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. Beat him really with the Jesus bad. stick. <laughs> <laughs> well, her, she had problems. I mean, the whole family had problems, but the mother had problems when she was young because she was an orphan, her and her two brothers. The mother died, father died. They were raised in the Catholic orphanage. The nuns beat them. And and the priest raped his mother, like repeatedly raped the mother when she met Kuklinski's father. Stanislaw. Yeah. He called Stanley, Stanley, but he was Polish immigrant. And she wasn't a virgin because she was raped, but she never told him because she was embarrassed. So he thought she was a whore and a slut. Right. Verbally abused her throughout the whole relationship because he wasn't a virgin when they met. Yeah. She worked in a meat packing plant. Yeah. He worked on the railroad. They had just regular jobs that they had to actually toil at. They were poor. He's picked on for being Polish, for being skinny. They would dress in these tattered clothes because they couldn't afford it. Yeah. And he, he had get- a younger brother too named Joseph. I yeah, believe so, yeah. It's a fucking candy stripe. He raped a little kid. Yes. Oh, okay, really? that's what I, I had read that he was convicted in 1970 of raping a 12-year-old girl and then throwing her off the top of a five-story building. Yeah, so, with her dog yeah. lady and the, is- the dog lived and was really? like yelping and shit next to the oh, 12-year-old girl. Jeez. Big Rich. That's what they call it. <laughs> Big Richie Kuklinski, the Iceman, has a 
thing. He's done all of these mafia contracts. He's Polish, you know, so he's not in the mafia. You have to be Must able be. to trace your lineage back to Italy to be in the Cosa Nostra here. But he's steeped in that culture where you don't take a contract on women, on children. You protect women and children. Even though he like beats his wife and beats her and gives her ice cream because then he says he feels bad about it. He did have some feelings of remorse at times. He, he uh, said initially he didn't, but when he got to his family, that's when he showed, if you believe it, remorse. Right. I felt sorry. It, it's all a matter of what you but believe it, with this guy. Yeah. He told somebody. It wasn't a matter stories. of remorse for the victims. It was for his family. But he said his first murder that he felt bad about it. But then right. as he reflected on it yeah. longer, he started to feel like, well, he deserved it. Better yeah. him than me. Exactly. Yeah. He was 14 years old, he says. Yeah. If we want to believe if, him, and he had dyslexia, read a bunch of crime novels, and it took him a long time to get through it because he couldn't read very well. Mm-hmm. But he got ideas from the crime novel about crime fighting and cut the kid's fingers off and yeah. like, allegedly fingerprints. And then right. but there's no, you would think there'd be a record of a kid, a young kid, a 14 year old kid being killed. There was, there's no right. records. It's That's kind of like a story of like, uh, do you see Halloween, the remake, when yeah. Michael Myers is young and he kills the bully in the woods? Exactly. It's kind of like invoke that image to exactly. me. Exactly. Tim, you were saying earlier that it gives him a little bit more sympathy for the murders because he would kill yeah. loudmouths and bullies as yeah. he grew up. He says that he killed 65 people before he even took a contract on anybody. He just was doing it for pleasure. Right. And he would kill dickheads in the bar. One dude was pissing and he right. choked them out. Another guy was the, fell asleep in his car and he one, lit him yeah. on fire. That was a guy that embarrassed him in the bar and initially he was not fine with it but he was mad but he got more vengeful as the evening went on and as he walked out of the bar he saw the guy he fell asleep in his car so he t- took like gasoline poured it in there lit it on fire when the guy was sleeping. As he was walking away he could actually hear the guy screaming for help. And well, smell him burning. Yeah smell him burning. Said. Yeah, he was definitely impulsive. You yeah, know, more <laughs> than. Oh God, yes. Yeah, <laughs> but like not methodically planned out. More like factor two. But it's weird that he wasn't methodically planned out because he was never caught until the end, until he actually was hate. Yeah. Wait, so was he not caught, though, because he didn't do any of these things and he's just lying? Maybe. Well, he would say that when he disposed of bodies, (laughs) what did he say that one guy, he was like, I put him in an oil drum on this corner and it sat there for a week and then it disappeared and I don't know what happened. Exactly. It was right outside a store and he kept going to the store every day. But he didn't seem well planned out or at least quite impulsive. He would poison people and then he just strangled them anyway. (laughs) That was the one guy. He didn't give him enough poison. Okay. <laughs> there, there was yeah. some level of and that's how he got caught. Yeah, like he was that how he got caught. Yeah, it, it, yeah, how he reacted. Right. So he would snap. He would become violent just because right. that was his impulse, and that's characteristic of a sociopath. Right. Um, More but, than like a factor one. But psychopath. he planned things too, though. Okay. Oh so, yeah, because he had you know right. He, he had a little bit of that. He stored right. the bodies in the freezer. Right. And then you know, keep them for sure. years. That was his big mistake because he kept the body for two years in the freezer and then left it out in the woods, but didn't give it enough time to thaw, and they found the ice crystals inside the body. The victim that died with cyanide, and then they went ahead and strangled him with lamp cord. Anyway, that was Gary Smith. Okay. In, I want to say 83. 82. 82. Where they left the body between the mattress and the box spring. It was discovered on December 27th, 1982. <laughs> in so a New Jersey 82. motel, under the bed, and how many people used that room in the next week? Quite a few. <laughs> yeah. It was a whole fuck ton of people. Oh, yeah. It was 20, all like people getting prostitutes. I think it was like 20 or 22 people in the room in between. Right. They smelled they something like, yeah. weird, but, but they were like... Gary Smith. Is that how they found it? The decomposing body started to smell at some point? Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. At least the people, the I mean, 20-some people who were in and out when questioned Generally, later, yeah. they admitted that it had smelled weird, smelled odor, but, but they didn't they were just check under the bed <laughs> I think that hotel needs a new cleaning service. <laughs> Probably. I, 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 
I've never been around a decomposing. Something smells like a dead body. It's the York, yeah. the York <laughs> Motel. Maybe it doesn't smell a lot yeah. early on, and I've never been well, around a decomposing body. Pop, again, enough of those little tree-scented <laughs> yeah, like air yeah. fresheners. Maybe not do the job. But apparently with Smith, he might not have been tied to that if it had just been the poison. It might have been ruled a drug overdose. But because there were ligatures from strangulation around the neck, they're like, okay, okay well, yeah, yeah okay. that was murder. Yeah. That's yeah. clearly Clear murder. <laughs> we can see that. You have to actually go out of your way to test for cyanide. It's yeah. very effective to kill somebody with because it kills quicker than arsenic quicker than strychnine and you have to specifically look for it and if this guy was found in this drug hotel yeah, you drug it this. could he be was laced in his hamburger yeah it could which be, is awful don't lace hamburgers with cyanide the hamburger that does not have pickles is the one with cyanide <laughs> due to shuffle it's game awful. so you other guys that are here know which ones to eat the password is pickle and Gary Smith was actually part of his burglary crew because he had a whole like ring of individuals mm-hmm. yeah. that were part of his operations and one of them got tied they were suspects and so he got nervous that they would turn on him right. so then he started killing some of them and so Gary right. Smith was actually one of his men that he had worked with for several years and yeah. then he got fed he <laughs> cyanide laced hamburger he started out pirating pornography for the Gambinos yeah. yep. and then he goes into having this side business of burglary and he did pretty well for himself I mean he didn't have a Swiss bank account I don't believe that he did the way he said that he had all this money. In yeah, Swiss listeners, he claimed much later on that even after he had filed for personal bankruptcy, he claimed that he had several Swiss bank accounts that had like $2 million. Yet he had a public defender. Right. So and again, New Jersey defend him. He had lots of <laughs> grandiose statements yeah. that yeah. aren't always backed up. Didn't he knock off trucks? Well, he stole cargo trucks, blank cassette tapes. And that's the reason that he killed one of the guys, too. I think what was yes. it? Louis Masquet? Yes. Well, I know Louis Masquet was the guy he got the moniker Iceman for because yeah. when he took he him was. out of cold storage it was like a nice day in September there wasn't cold yet he could have waited a couple of months and then maybe the guy would have had a reason to have ice in him he could have thawed him out a little bit longer yeah his body was found in Orangetown New York and he had been going to meet with Rich to collect those blank cassette tapes so they could use them to either make knockoffs or pornography and he carried within his van $95,000. Because that was a thing a lot with his some of his earlier victims was that, and this is what ties him to them in the criminal cases, is he was the last person that these people were going to meet with. And <laughs> they all, right, so he was the last Daniel person Deppner known to also, see them. Yeah, Daniel yeah. Deppner and Georgie Boy, he called him. George, George Malabar, yeah, and Paul Hoffman. And so these different individuals, the last person they're going to meet with is Richard. And they usually carry <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars with them because they're either buying buying these tapes or in Hoffman's case he was a pharmacist and he was going to buy prescription drugs from him so he had carried about $22,000 so that he could buy these prescription drugs and then he would resell them in his knockoff pharmacy and George Malban was carrying $27,000 when he went to buy the tapes so of course not only is Richard the last person that they're going to meet with and like it's known so like other people are like oh he was going to meet with Richard when they disappear so first off he's the last person but then all the money that they were carrying also disappeared so it was also so it's obvious in retrospect why was he caught earlier then. Right, right. <laughs> it seems like more ineptitude, but he wasn't caught earlier. Well, Not the, that he was this criminal genius. Right? Right. Undercover DEA right. got him on tape saying, you want to do a hit? Then he was talking about how he does it. Yeah. They have everything on tapes. So that joint operation by the New Jersey Attorney General's Office and the Bureau of ATF. Alcohol, alcohol, and it was the right. undercover detective spent 18 months undercover as a drug dealing career criminal. They got everything on tape. And there's nothing Dominic, he can say uh, Palafran was his last name, I think, the undercover guy. But they theorized that the Iceman was just going to kill him anyway. What they were saying was that like, you know, all right, he could tell him whatever he wanted to tell him 
because he was going to kill him anyway. But I'm thinking like, if you are a fucking criminal that needs to not be on tape saying illegal things and you've gotten away with it for 30 years, why would you just start saying things out loud? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. And if this guy is like, hey, how do you kill this guy? You know, why won't you use, what did he say on the phone? Like, what? You don't use iron. You use that cyanide. You know, like on the telephone. I mean, <laughs> this is narcissism. Yeah, you know, he didn't yeah. think he'd ever get caught. Exactly. There's a certain level of hubris if she's yeah. been getting away with it for this long. And also, sociopaths tend not to be that bright, despite their depiction in Hollywood. You know, like Hannibal <laughs> Lecter, they just really are average to low intelligence. Well, yeah. this guy had an eighth grade education, and what I read was that it took him until he was 16 to get out of the eighth grade. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I read that he had bad dyslexia. I was heard he just dropped out, though. At eighth grade, he just... Which is always weird, because his mom was so strict on education and religion. Yeah. Why? And that's another fallacy, like, I believe is a fallacy, is just why would she let him drop out? She was so strict on it. So to me, when I hear that story, I'm kind of like, Because eh. he was 16 years old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, at 16, you can drop out. At least now. long enough, Mom. <laughs> I was curious about this, because it keeps coming up with intelligence, and I did read that, where the average serial killer has an IQ of about 93. You know, significantly below average. So when we harp on the... Ted Bundy's and the they're, they're kind of the exceptions. I think Gary, well, I, going back to our one of our previous episodes, like a Gary Heidnick. Yeah. Yeah, exception. He was in the wrong 40s, I believe. So. Yeah, something like that. And I've been but throwing out the a... term sociopath. I just want to clarify that not all sociopaths are killers. Exactly. That they don't all become serial killers. So. Yeah, but all serial killers are sociopaths. I think I that's a pretty safe yeah. bet. Right. But they found on him a notebook of death. Basically, he thought he was fucking Confucius, though, with an eighth grade education. And he would take murder notes for himself and get ideas from, like, fucking cartoons. Like Popeye and the... There's the eighth grade uh, Who's the motherfucker that gets the, the, the anvil dropped on him all the time? The Wiley Coyote. Coyote. Wiley Coyote. <laughs> He Why would take he? notes and kill people in ways that he would get inspired for from TV. And he had a spiral notebook that they found, like when they arrested him, that had all these fucking murder notes in it. <laughs> how to kill people. So he was like Confucius. He was always wanted to improve. improve. <laughs> I believe it was. I don't know how sadistic he was, though. You know, because on the tapes, a lot of times you hear him saying, like, why do it messy? Like, let's just poison them. He said he cut one body up and he was like, I didn't feel anything about it. You know, I didn't I but, didn't like it. But I yeah, because they asked him, how about chainsaws? And he was like, yeah, I use a chain. I don't like them, but I try. I tried a chainsaw one Works. time. He was like, I was walking around with like little pieces of meat on myself. I, I wasn't really crazy about Ugh. that. So I had to take off my clothes and then I had to drive my That's another story though. My but. Cadillac with or, or what did he have? Um, a Lincoln Town Car. Yeah. He said I had to go drive that naked with like a towel wrapped around myself. Because <laughs> I had to throw my clothes out and I didn't want to get in my but car with that. That's another, I had a perfectly good shirt that I had to throw out. <laughs> that was another story where I'm like is this really real? I mean, where was he going to go to chainsaw a body? Did he own in the like- Bat Cave? Is where he's going to go in Bucks <laughs> well- County, Pennsylvania. Did you read how he yes. would do the rats? It wasn't the Bat Cave; it was the Rat Cave. But he would go to Bucks County, Pennsylvania. This is at least what he said. He says. Uh, yeah some of the people would pay more for torture and then they couldn't even watch the videos and he was like I found it distasteful but they were paying for it so I would just do it the rats <laughs> would eat them the way that pigs would eat all the well, yeah, he, that's said he said they would eat all the flesh off and people would just scream for hours while the rats just ate them to death in these caves that he would tie them up in and then film the entire thing though it's interesting so also later cave experts who like spend obviously most of their time in the caves up in Bucks County are like there's 
No Never, evidence. No evidence of that. No. The rats that live up there aren't yeah. even that type of rat to eat the body. But that's a whole different thing. I wanted to say, though, Tim, in regards to what you're saying, so that undercover agent who spent 18 months undercover says and he wasn't a serial killer. He killed for money, killed on orders from different mob people. When he used to tell me how they did it, there was a smile on the talk. So, like, he was evil, but he's like, no, yeah. he wasn't a serial killer. He, he was just killing So that's when money. it comes down to, when you mention terms like psychopath, sociopath, those are descriptor terms, but really in the psychological field, it comes under one diagnosis. It's a personality disorder. Yeah. It's antisocial personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And to him, it wasn't, the sadism wasn't a factor in that at all. Right. Like you had said, he could care less either way. For him to kill someone would be the equivalent of us taking out our trash and throwing it in the dumpster. As long as he didn't get messy or as long right. as he didn't get caught or get in trouble. Right. He had no compunction about it either way. The strength that psychoanalyzed him said that he had also interviewed Jeffrey Dahmer, who had to get drunk before he yep. actually cut bodies up because it made him it sick. Sense. And this guy was just like, yeah, whatever. Very cold about it. But then you have also like a BTK who is just pure factor one psychopathy where yeah. also overlaps with antisocial personality disorder just gets off on his the pure sadism. That is what drives him is seeing people suffer. Mm-hmm. I always find Dahmer <laughs> is really interesting. I mean, I think he was a psychopath but it is interesting that it bothered him on some level. Like he had more human emotion than like a BTK. Well, he was into sex and the yeah. Iceman didn't get any sexual satisfaction out of the murders. He didn't drink. He didn't gamble. That was one of the things the New Jersey prosecutor said for like an example of why he's not a serial killer. And I'm thinking like, but do serial killers not drink and not gamble? Like, I, I, I don't know where the connection with that is necessarily, but he's definitely different than the average killer because he's not getting this sexual satisfaction out of it. He is maybe, if we were to take him at his word, maybe he's a sadistic motherfucker that would kill people anyway because they remind him of his dad, because they're loud, because they're abusive, because they're dicks, they're bullies or something like that. That's what he would have us believe and honed it into killing for money. And Rui DeMeo is the Gambino capo that he worked for doing the pirated pornography and then collecting as an enforcer for them because he's a big fucking guy and he would intimidate if you owed him money. If you owed the Gambino his money and then Kuklinski, big rich, big Richie they called him, this fucking 350 pound dude shows up, you're going to fucking pay him where he would crack skulls and he would crack skulls and he was a bad motherfucker no matter how many people we believe or not that he killed and what he did that was crazy exaggerative that he did or did not do, he was a big badass motherfucker with very little emotions in any way other than for like family and that was it and he was actually married when he was really young, he had two kids with this one woman that was older than him and walked in on her he says having sex with somebody else so like the Iceman walks in on his wife having (laughs) sex with somebody what do you think he does breaks every bone in that dude's body and cuts her nipples off and then you know they get divorced but where's the fucking police report that he cut her nipples off (laughs) exactly I don't see the police report being anywhere he was also dating a second wife while he was married to the first wife so do you really believe that he called her in bed that's another one that's like, eh, I don't know if I believe that one. But it's about revving up his ego. Exactly. You know, making him... A lot of his claims yeah. seem to be about his ego. Yeah. Right. Trying to sell himself as, yeah. a, as a brand. As a, yeah, as Especially a, yeah, yeah. once he starts talking in prison. After he's convicted, he's sitting in prison and he's doing yeah. all these different interviews with psychiatrists and newspapers and authors Anybody. and all these people. Yeah, yeah. Whoever wants to talk to him, he's willing to chat. And that seems to be when a lot of his lies really just start getting out there and he just starts going on 
on the wall claiming I've killed 200 people. And it's like, all right, you're documenting it to kill five. Yeah. So and that, that but, is a feature of antisocial personality yeah, disorder is great. that they lie. Yeah. They use deceit. So Joe mentioned earlier from 2003 with the psychiatrist Dietz, and he basically diagnosed him or at least mentioned the antisocial disorder and paranoid personality disorder. Yeah. Those were the two mm. that he talked to. It's an interesting clip yeah. to watch because there's clips on YouTube and I mean, the psychiatrist is just saying this to Big Rich and you're just like, oh, okay, you're just going to say this to this man. I mean, I know he's but already he in jail. Four, but he had sat with him for 14 hours yeah. and spoke. So we don't know at what point he was yeah. telling him like, hey, this is what you have going on yeah. here, dude. Because it seems when you just watch, he's just sitting across the table from this guy. I don't, maybe he's handcuffed underneath. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You can't tell in the video. But he, but he, he could have talked to him for he, 10 he, hours first and he, got a rapport before he said that shit. But he did ask what was wrong with him. This and he thanked him. You. I did that too after like two years of therapy. I'm like, so we've been doing this for two years. What's wrong with me? <laughs> she's like, what do you mean? Like a person? She's like, like a personality disorder? I'm like, yeah, you don't have one. Like, oh, okay, that's good. I'm not special. We just want your she's like, oh, you're plenty too. fucked up. But like, you don't you're actually. You're just generic person. fucked up. Yeah. There's no title for what you are. <laughs> you're a new kind of fucked up thing. <laughs> but did you see the part with the psychiatrist? He's like, you're getting me mad. And he's like, you just said something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. And, yeah. and the psychiatrist's like, what did I say? He's like, I don't know, but there's. there's you just put my said, finger on it. You're, you're getting me mad. But you've annoyed me. And he's like, and it, and it, and he's and the psychiatrist, psychiatrist is pushing him like, well, tell me, what did I do? And he's like, and he, he got real serious. He goes, I'm, he said, I'm not going to do anything stupid. Oh, that's like, good. In other words, I'm yeah. very I'm reassuring. Me in the hole exactly. I do something dumb, <laughs> and then you guys aren't going to pay me if I murder you. So, <laughs> but he did get really quiet though. It was My wife eerie. needs the money. If he was faking, it was a good fake, and he's just like up real quiet all of a sudden. Yeah. It's so, very eerie. You watch his personality. Blink. I mean, he's just he's so kind of cold. He's a little well-spoken if you think about the way he acts and if you've ever seen The Sopranos, he acts like a better version of Tony Soprano, a more gangster version of Tony Soprano because he's well-spoken, cold, methodical. He'll say like, I'm not apologizing for anything. There's no reason to apologize. This is the way I am. There's no reason for emotions. Emotions hold you back. They're a mistake to have. And he has no emotions. That's what he says, at least. And he looks like he doesn't have very many emotions whatsoever, other than when it comes to his wife, Barbara, who gives interviews, too. And the funniest thing that I could find, because, I mean, he's doing fucking things for HBO and he's raking in some money like while he's in jail. Obviously, she's a beneficiary of that. And she's talking about, I can't even buy paper towels. I got to scrape pennies together. Yet she's wearing a mink coat while she's saying that. One man's version of poor is different than another man's. The daughters that he's got, Kristen and, <laughs> and Merrick. Have you seen what they look like? No. Like you saw them on dating apps? They look like the Iceman. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> They're cute as kids. The one has his ashes and wrote them like all of these. I didn't read the letters, but I read that they were very touching letters, you know, to, you know, I love you, daddy, and shit like that. And After you killed my dog, I came it home late. did seem like he was good at dividing. Yeah, he compartmentalizing. Let, yeah, yeah, he didn't let that get to the house. It seems like they were totally in the dark. BTK was also like that. His but kids he, were just totally shocked. But he did be, I mean, there are definitely yeah. signs there how violent he was. I mean, he beat his yeah. wife, his second wife. He beat her pretty Barbara. good. Well, she don't ask questions. Don't yeah. ask questions. She knew. She found one time like a gun wrapped in rags up on one of the 
the top shelves and she was just like, I didn't ask shit, you know? <laughs> I just knew not that. I ask questions and I get the fucking shit beat out of me. She miscarried. And then he gives me ice cream later. She miscarried the first child because he beat her up. I think she had I think four, four. Mis- four miscarriages yeah. because he kept fucking beating her. Yeah, and the one time he... But he wants to protect women and children. But he well, beats the fuck out of his wife and kills his unborn child. Yeah, the like one time times. that he caused a miscarriage with the beating was because she remarked about some guy on TV looking like somebody he worked with and he just beat the crap out of her just mentioning that. Yeah. So compartmentalizing, yeah, but as far as killing, but the abuse and the violence was definitely still there with the family. He at least thought he had some sort of true love for them, though, because he said he never regretted anything he did. He never had any bad feelings about it. The only regret he had was the way he affected his family. family. But I think that's probably pretty common to serial killers. It's not that he didn't have feelings. They were cold when it comes to what he sees as outside the boundary of himself. And if he does things to benefit himself, if he sees his family to some degree as an extension of himself, then yeah, he can have remorse or have feelings around negative things that impact his family. And that's the one thing with the video, the family makes it seem like we had no idea what he was doing. But yet he'd get up in the middle of the night and go out and the wife was like, I had no idea. I never asked a question. I'm like, how do you not ask that question? Like, where the you don't ask you unless you know, you know that yeah, something bad's going bliss. down. Like yeah. you don't you don't know exactly what he's doing, but, but you're you know not... whatever it is is not good. Yeah. Exactly. Just... She said suitcases of money would come home in return though. So she just didn't ask questions. Hey. Because, I mean, Richie, when he grew up, he was poor as fuck. And what he would always say is that he never wanted his family to have to go through that. And they had a pretty nice middle-class home in Bergen County, New Jersey. And his official job was an international monetary exchange, traded African currency or something like that in Nigeria. And which he even said he went over there to kill people, too. And he hated Africa. And I don't know, but he set people free. He has all these fucking crazy stories. But his neighbors did not know him for anything other than being a successful businessman man. I mean, he was, he didn't live in a mansion, but he lived in a nice, a nice middle home. class home. Mm-hmm. And his daughter, when she was young, was in children's hospital. All the nurses knew him as being very friendly, very doting father. The people next door couldn't afford, I guess, a, a TV in their room. And he was like, here, here's extra money. Put a TV in their room. I guess he talked to the guy whose kid was in there too with him. So there were little things that he would do where he had little bits of feeling about children. And maybe it goes back to his childhood and not being treated with love. Absolutely. So growing up, we talked about the conditions that he grew up with, and that is when children in that developmental stage are forming their attachment. Mm -hmm. And it's usually with their parents or their caregivers. And so if he's living with a family that's abusive, that's emotionally distant, and that's supposed to be his secure and his safe place is his home, then he goes outside to the neighborhood and he's beaten. What do you learn from that? You learn that emotions are not going to serve you well. You learn that violence will get you a sense of control. Once you can control that situation, it's less scary. Violence and intimidation. Mm-hmm. And that's what he said, too, when he just took it from the bullies when he was a kid, that he would keep bullying him. But then when he fought back, there's this story that he gives where he took the rack out of the closet where he would hang your clothes like, yeah. like the iron rod. And he brings it out and he beats that one bully to death. And he's like, and he didn't bully me anymore. I was happy. But he said he was really scared. He stayed home from school and he was really scared that they would know he did it. But once they didn't know he was the one that killed the little kid that was the bully. Then he wasn't bullied anymore. And that was a good thing. And, and so if you are the one that puts your foot down and through violence stops that stuff from happening, then that's better than being the one that's the recipient of the violence. There's some legitimacy in that. There are people, I don't know if you've had people like that in your life, that violence is kind of the only remedy to show them. You know what I mean? I, I don't know what your experiences are like, but I mean, there are certain people who don't get any other message is other yeah. than fighting back. 
Yeah, turned and, up to the bully. Right. He just took it as the universal. Like this is the only message with life. Better but, to beat people than to be the beaten. But he did take it a little far. I mean, he was he <laughs> really was beaten, far. But he killed in like, returns. Yeah. Escalated. Yeah. 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 But even de- describing his first kill, which. Like, when he beat the bully to death, he said he felt remorse at first, but then the sense of a rush, like a power. Yes, I read that and too, relief. that he was empowered is how it yeah. was described. Yes. And if you come from a fearful attachment style where you, you can't trust your environment, the people around you, and now you feel powerful and you feel in control, that's like a drug. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to keep doing that because it's getting rewarded. He gets what he wants out of it, and then eventually he starts making money from it. So that family that he built, that represented the security that he never had as a child. Hmm. Extremely loud inside of a car. <laughs> Matter of fact, my ears were ringing for a long time. I walked away, got in my car, and went home. I put toys together for the kids for Christmas. I saw the broadcast while I was putting the toys together. It came down. Mob-related killing. That was the first time I knew I was mob-related. <laughs> he would murder someone, cut their body, wrap them in layer after layer of plastic bags and material. If I were to do somebody, I want at least five figures. And at least up in the better half. We were the all-American family. I mean, we had what seemed to be the perfect life. There were wonderful times. He wanted this guy uh, taken care of, but he wanted to talk to him first. So uh, when I got to the place, I asked the man for the money. So the guy says he didn't have it, and Roy would just have to wait until he got the money to pay him. And that was that. He'd have to wait. So I said to the man, I said, well... You have to then talk to him. He wants to talk to you. So I dialed the phone number. He got on the phone, and I said, he wants to talk to you. So he was talking to him, and uh, I guess they were acting like everything was all right because he got off the phone, and he handed me the phone back. He says, hey, I told you he'd wait. He's in the better frame of mind. Don't worry about it. He wants to talk to you now. So I picked up the phone, and he said, kill him. About 1% to 2% of the population has the paranoid personality disorder. About... Two to three percent of males and one percent of females have the antisocial personality disorder. And then there's a smaller group that has both. And it was having both that allows you to have this career that you've had and that allowed you to profit from your capacity for a completely emotionless, fearless, remorseless hit by being free of any conscience and also free of friends and of people who could bring you down you were able to have a very long run as a successful contract killer which is quite unusual and you wouldn't have been able to do that had you not had both of those personality flaws in your line of work that turned out to be major advantages kind of preconditions for a successful career are American and world history professors Joe Woji and Brittany Smith today with historian Ted Sisko, ethics professor Tim Collins, and psychologist and horror writer Frank Jucknowitz. Educational fuckery for your enjoyment. You're listening to Grim. Friends, lovers, my cult of the macabre, educated, sick, grim, beautiful, motherfuckers. Parting is such sweet sorrow. 
I could take you home, tuck you under my covers with some hot cocoa and flannel sheets, a little fire crackling, brothers and sisters grim bedtime stories, all warm and snug sugar plum motherfuckers, all nestled in our bed with some Delta 9 gummies and vape, Brittany and I and Ted, we're going to take you home with us for a sleepover and Toll House chocolate chip cookie dough. The celebrity historian Brittany Smith will be signing articles of educational fuckery from JSTOR as we listen to heartwarming and smooth sermons from the minister of Satan himself, Thaddeus Ted Sisko. With educational fuckeries in our hearts and Patreon-exclusive benefits in our minds. Patreon.com backslash Grim Philly. Just visit Patreon.com backslash Grim Philly. That's Patreon.com backslash Grim Philly. Till next time, friend. Keep it beautiful and keep it grim.